I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. C-13 Originals. News of three people dead in what's being called a double homicide and a suicide spread quickly Monday. I went out there and the car was gone. And I was like, oh, good. They weren't home. Sheila Throckmorton works next door to this home that burned down in Marion County near Lake of the Pines. She says she knows the woman and her son who were found dead and the woman's husband who was found dead in a car outside from what investigators are calling a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Every single day he stopped in and he would stop in once or twice a day and he said, do you need anything from the store? Do you need anything? You know, like he would run an errand for us or whatever. And, and um, he would stop in and say, if you need anything, you, you just call. Throckmorton says the last few months were tough on the family as the 88-year-old woman cared for her terminally ill son and her husband watched helplessly. I have to believe that he struggled with the, the decision. I don't, I, I don't think it was a spur of the moment. I don't think it was a, a violence thing. I, I have to believe that it wasn't. I tell you this, I was sitting right here watching TV. And they was telling about Lake of the Pines. This fella killed his wife, killed his son-in-law. He shot himself. And they said, Paul, don't. And when they said that, it rung a bell, you know. And my wife was in there asleep. And I got up and I walked in there and I said, Frida. I says, what they call Butch? And my wife said, Paul, don't. I says, he just shot himself. He just killed himself. He killed his wife and his son-in-law. You know, that kind of took the lid off of the pot. So I got on the telephone, and I called Jackie. I had a very violent upbringing, so one of the things I strive to do with my children is to give them good memories of their childhood. I want them to look back and think positive. So... One of our favorite spots is to fly down to Florida, go to Disney World, go to SeaWorld, and then go down to the Keys. So at the end of our trip, literally our last night there, we all went to bed, and that night I'm sleeping in the hotel, and it's like 11 o'clock at night, and my phone starts ringing. It was actually Uncle Harry that left a message and said, something's happened, you need to call us. So I called him back, and they said that they're seeing something on the news about a murder-suicide. And um, they said that it looked like his house, 
that they weren't um, releasing any names. And I'm thinking, oh, oh, fuck, my fucking father's dead. I describe it like a, um, like a chalkboard with a bunch of writing on it. The writing was that 10 days that I spent in Florida with my children. My father doing that was the eraser. It just erased. I don't remember that trip. That trauma of finding out that that happened just blew everything else like right out of the picture. That was just bam. Just That's all I got for now. What good's a man who's lost his soul? Can't take a stand when his flame's gone I'm Jackie Taylor, and this is Relative Unknown. About a week after I got the news from my Auntie Frida and Uncle Harry, back in July of 2013, I traveled to their farm in Campty, Louisiana. Campty is a tiny town of about a thousand people, a little over an hour away from Shreveport, which is where my father and his sister Frida are from. For most of my life, I had no contact with my aunt and uncle, but we'd reconnected a few years earlier. They were close with my father and live only 90 minutes from where his house was in Lake of the Pines, Texas. My uncle Harry is one of the warmest people I know. But my Auntie Frida is much more guarded. Hello, Auntie. Hello, baby. I'm better now that I'm here. She's been looking over her shoulder for more than 30 years, and she's not thrilled I'm telling this story. They're not using his real name, are they? Yeah, I think so. Well, it's not going to get any of his family in uh, in any danger, is it? That's why, you know, I didn't want to get it brought back up that it would... uh, interfere with any of our family. You know, the kid folks and stuff, which had a big history. More ways than one, you know, not just because he was a biker in the joint for so many years, you know. He just a very, very intelligent man. He had a photostatic memory. He knew dates, time, people, just like that, just off his head. That's why they were so scared of him. But I'm glad it's coming out in the open, maybe to protect the people in the future, instead of just throwing them out there. That's what I'm hoping. Because it, it ruins so many lives. Maybe you can get it straightened out. So, the very next morning, the three of us, we called ourselves the Three Musketeers because the journeys that we took together were um, kind of insane here and there. But it was always the three of us, my Uncle Harry, my Aunt Frida, who was my father's sister, and myself. Um, so our first stop was um, Sheriff David McKnight's. 
Jackie showed up here and introduced herself who she was. He um, said he was sorry for my loss, yada, yada. I wasn't sorry. I was just angry at my father all over again. And I related to her kind of what was going on up to this point and uh, what we were running into of his true identity. And he asked me, uh, do you do you know who your father was? I said, yeah. He said, no, but do you really know who your father was? And I told her, you know, I'll just bring you over and show you what we discovered. And I told her I had this trunk. She was surprised that her dad had preserved it. But the thing that she was really interested in was the manuscript. I just wanted to rip into it. I wanted to see what was in there. You know, that's like a weird, sadistic treasure chest to me. There could be so many answers to my life, questions that my mother unfortunately refused to answer. And here I am, everything that I probably need to know about my past is in this freaking trunk. And as soon as I opened up that trunk, I just, I smelled the 70s. And um, I get to this other part of the trunk, which has a lot of his HA memorabilia. And I pull out these red and white patches. He's got the three-piece set. He's even got the filthy few little patch. He's got it all. These patches, they're in a big Ziploc bag. I opened up the Ziploc bag and I, I could smell motorcycles still. I can smell that fucking clubhouse. I can smell everything. I can smell my dad. And I'm pulling out the first rocker and it says Hell's Angels. I'm pulling out the death head. And I pull out the last one and it says Cleveland. And I set it on my lap just how it would have been on his back, on his coat. And I'm looking at it thinking, wow, this does not belong on my fucking lap. You do not have those patches in your possession or a death head skull or rings or jewelry, anything, if you are not a club member. And Sheriff McKnight was concerned that um, something would happen if they found out that I had those patches. I told her that if a Hells Angel member found out she had them, it could possibly be dangerous. After I left Sheriff McKnight's office with my father's trunk, I drove out to where his house once stood. And as I pulled up into the driveway between the bait shop and the liquor store, I saw his house, or what what was left of the house. (laughs) I was shocked. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was just rubble. There, were, It was just black, burnt everywhere. And, you know, it dropped me to my knees and I, I was devastated for, you know, everything that the three of them went through. You know, they didn't have to die. He didn't have to do what he did. This isn't how it was supposed to be. It shouldn't look like this. So, what exactly happened here? Two people were murdered. A house was set on fire. And somebody committed suicide. That being my father. 
This is just symbolic of a system that failed a man and ended up feeling an entire family and hurt a community. In the witness protection program, there's just so many flaws in the whole system. He just fell through the cracks. But they got what they wanted out of him. And I'm kicking myself now because I never fully got to know Paul Dome. But I listened to a lot of other people about who Clarence Crouch was. And that's probably going to haunt me for the rest of my life. There's a tremendous amount of guilt that's felt when I stand here. I just wish I would have known him a little bit better. I, I know. I never really got to know him like everybody around here did. I just get mad at him sometimes, you know? We had so much in common, we could have fucking, we... <laughs> I don't want to be mad at him. calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. <laughs> and now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners. We got listeners. No way. Amazing. Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last. Action. Hi. Turn around, you guys. The light's off. You sure? Yeah, the light's not on. I got tape over it. How many times I got to say it? Get away from the front of it, everybody. Daddy, you can usually see it. It's recording. Beepy. Look, look at it's that. It's recording. I told you it's recording. Get away from it before you hit the leg. Move away. Come on. Come on back down here. Get away, Bubba. This is audio from a VHS cassette that my father recorded on his video camera. It's him, my mother Mary, me, my younger sister Jamie, and my younger brother Jeff. And we're sitting on a blanket next to a lake getting ready to fish. Come on. Watch that hook. Watch that fish hook right there. It feels like a million years ago, but we look happy. Hey, for dessert we can have worms. We got nice rollers and regular worms. When I think about Cleveland and growing up in Cleveland back in the 70s, that was the happiest time of my life. I had my whole family together. 
And there was a lot of love back then. I got a good idea. Let's throw mom in the lake. Yeah. <laughs> my grandfather had lived on a couple of lakes and he'd bought my mother a house just down the path from him. And my grandparents took great care of us while my mother was at work and my father was out on his runs. I had a lot of uncles growing up and those were all HA members. The Hells Angels, I grew up in the clubhouse, Uncle Whitey, Uncle Red, Uncle Scotty, and I grew up with all of the members and I grew up with all of their children. And we are all one big family. When I heard a motorcycle, it was a comforting feeling to me because I knew that my father or my uncles were near. I didn't get to uh, spend a lot of time with my father. He was constantly on the road when I was little. So that almost brought a sense of excitement, the sound of a motorcycle, knowing that I might possibly see my dad. And I remember, you know, if I heard a motorcycle or if one drove by, I always looked for my father. I remember his bike. He had ape hangers and he had an old pan head that he'd painted orange. So I, I always kind of knew what to look for. And <clears throat> I still actually kind of look when a bike goes by to see if it's my dad. It's just out of habit. I remember my father had his motorcycle in our living room, which he turned into his garage. I remember there being oil on the carpet all around his motorcycle. He, he was always dirty. His boots were always dirty. His pants were always dirty. He always smelled like a motorcycle. I mean, he had a smell about him. It wasn't a pleasant smell, but it was my dad's smell. I remember the dirt under his fingernails or possibly the oil, um, his greasy hair. He always smelled like cigarettes. He always had a knife on his belt. And he always had cocaine in his pocket, or possibly crank, I don't know. But he always had a, a knife that he would pull out and pull his little baggie of drugs out and do a little toot. He called it his medicine. He was your classic dirty old biker then. My mother and my father are, I, I just, I can't even describe how different of characters. I mean, I still question that, how did that happen? I don't know exactly how they met. Mary was the apple of everyone's eye. She was doted on by everyone in the family. And she was just like the perfect one, the one that obeyed, kind of like the goody two-shoes in the family. This is my cousin Linda from Cleveland. She and my mother Mary are only about 10 years apart. And Linda knew some stuff about the family history that I didn't. Mary got an education, became a nurse, and worked in the hospital, had a very good job, got her own apartment, had a nice car, and she was engaged to a very, very nice, very good-looking gentleman. And all of a sudden, it was broken off. And... It really wasn't ever talked about. But it came out that this fella wanted to have sex before marriage. And Mary refused. And so 
that was the break off of that relationship. Now, somewhere after that relationship went awry, she got pregnant. I have no idea who, what, where, how, I have no idea. And then all of a sudden, she decides to take off to California. And she lived out there, and she had this child, and she gave it up for adoption, which was so out of character. So, okay, so now she's back in Cleveland, and her brother, Gene, he is down in the Cleveland Flats. Back in the 70s, the flats were a very, very dangerous place to be. And he happened to be down there, and there was a fight. My Uncle Gene Zagar, who was called Mean Gene or Meanie, was a member of the Animals Motorcycle Club, and he was also a Hells Angel hangaround. Well, one night in April of 1971, he was 25 years old and he got into a bar fight. He got shot and stabbed. And then he and another guy killed a 63-year-old man. Police said the man they killed was stabbed 65 times. And Gene was put in prison. And his father fought day and night to get him out. Now, while he was in prison, Mary also gets involved, working with her dad to try and get her brother released. And somewhere along the line, she meets Butch. When Sheriff McKnight gave me my father's trunk, more than anything in there, I was excited to read his manuscript, Hate and Discontent. But it's really hard to get through. Imagine reading about all the illegal and awful things your father's done in his life. But since he's not here to tell his story, it's the next best thing. So throughout this podcast, you'll hear passages from it. Here he writes about meeting my mother during the time she was trying to help get Meanie out of jail. And my dad was trying to help get some of his Hells Angels brothers out of jail too. I was appointed to get in touch with the families, see if they could come up with some money. So I called up Meanie's sister, Mary, who had done a lot of the talking to the families and lawyers. She had come by the clubhouse a few times, and I met her. So after I called her and she came over to the apartment, we started going around talking to the families. Then after, we would go over to the apartment, sit around drinking wine. And after jumping into bed a couple of times, she got to calling me every night. One night, I just started hanging up the phone, and she just kept calling back, which went on for hours. She wasn't really pretty. And most of all, she didn't fit what I figured a Hells Angels old lady would be. But the more I talked to Mary, the more I began to like her. She was different than all the bitches that hung around the club that I had been with. She was a registered nurse and had a good head on her shoulders. One day, we loaded up my bike and split for Louisiana to see my family. Mary had all these credit cards. And at first, I was telling myself that that was what I was really after, just spending and buying everything I wanted. And after a while, she would just go on down the road like the rest of those bitches. But as we got down in Louisiana and she began to shine in a better light, I began to really get into her. My grandfather was never okay with the fact that my mother was dating a Hells Angel. 
My uncle was the wild child, and I think that my grandfather did everything in his power to preserve the innocence of my mother and to at least try to get her out of that lifestyle, because that's definitely not where she belonged in his eyes. My grandfather was a wonderful man, Frank Zagar. He was a hardworking, uh, middle-class, blue-collar man, worked for the railroad and then went to work for the shipyard. My grandfather was the love of my life. Him and my father were the exact opposite. My father never worked a day in his life, so they never got along. One day, my father was home and he was drunk during the day and he was outside chopping wood and I was in the house and my grandfather walked down the little path there and I went to see what was going on at the front door and my grandfather and my father both told me to go back in the house. I went back to my bedroom window and I saw that they were arguing and my father took a shotgun and hit my grandfather over the head with it. And my grandfather was bleeding. I remember seeing blood and he was holding his head and I was just devastated that he would do that to him. I think my father wanted so bad to have that pure, sweet, loving family life that my mother strived so hard to give him. And he just couldn't break away from his demons. This is a request for a unique identifier regarding the investigation of Clarence Addy Crouch of Cleveland, Ohio. This official document was submitted on April 16, 1981 by a Cleveland ATF agent named Bernie Butkovich. Here, Butkovich makes a request for what is called a unique identifier to enter my father's name as a person of interest. Crouch, going by street names of Weasel, Swamp Fox, Butch, or Buddy, is a member of the Hells Angels Motorcycle Club, Cleveland, Ohio chapter. This outlaw gang comprises approximately 50 chapters located in eight countries around the world. They are heavily involved in firearms, trafficking, and have a propensity for automatic weapons and destructive devices. In addition, Hells Angels control the market on PCP in the United States and Canada. Crouch has an extensive record of violent crimes throughout the country, having been arrested in Louisiana, Texas, California, and Florida for such offenses as drug possession, rape, robbery, and kidnapping. This investigation will determine the extent of Crouch's involvement in criminal activity as it relates to ATF violations, in addition to organized crime contacts where applicable. If appropriate, a criminal case will be perfected against Crouch and any associate Hells Angels members that fall within the scope of this investigation. Just a month later, Bernie Butkovich submitted another report. This one shows that he was trying to locate my dad. The report lists 71 phone numbers associated with my father, but he couldn't be reached to any of them. So Butkovich went and spoke with my grandfather. On May 18, 1981, Frank Zagar was interviewed regarding Crouch. Mr. Zagar, Crouch's father-in-law, related that Crouch had pulled a gun on him back in October 1980. Mr. Zagar promised his cooperation in our investigation, but could offer no substantive leads to Crouch's whereabouts. Then, Butkovich spoke to my mother at her job. Mary Crouch was interviewed at Geauga Community Hospital. 
Miss Crouch related that she didn't know Clarence's whereabouts, but would try and locate him. Mary Crouch was very distraught and didn't want to comment on anything related to her husband. My mother suspected that something was happening with my father. We lived on private property and there was a sedan parked out front. This obviously stuck out like a sore thumb. There was no hiding. And it was two suits in a sedan. And my mother knew something was terribly wrong. I wasn't aware of anything back then. I remember the sedan and where it was parked, but I don't specifically remember anything except all of a sudden we were moving. My dad did not come with us. My mother was actually trying to escape him and whatever the hell he had going on. She knew that something was up, so she took us and she bolted. It was scary and it was heartbreaking to leave my grandparents. They were the most stability and love that I'd ever had in my life. So I didn't want to leave that, but it was an adventure. We were told it was an adventure and it was going to be fun. And we were going to get to go to Florida and go to Disney World and yada, yada. I remember my mother telling us that we would see our father someday, but just not right now. And we started a new life down in Florida. We moved to a town called Sebring. My mother got hired as a nurse at a local hospital and us kids went to school. We missed our family back home in Cleveland, but we spoke to our grandparents and cousins all the time. The family knew that they were in Florida to uh, be away from Butch and, of course, to try and safeguard the children. But then all of a sudden, there was like nothing. Gone. Gone off the face of the earth. No contact, by phone, by letter, nothing. This is the part that's just like the movies. All of us children were woke up by these men in black suits that were ushering us, come on, we gotta go, we gotta go, we gotta go. And it was in the middle of the night. And I just remember my mother's calming voice, it's okay guys, it's okay. Come on, let's go, we're gonna go on an adventure. I remember my brother and my sister both crying, and I was crying because they were crying, and it was just mass, mass confusion with my mother's voice saying, it's okay, it's okay. We were still in our nightgowns. We were being pulled out of bed and just very, very hurried, hurry, 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 hurry. It was really dark. It was scary. These men were scary. I didn't know what was going on. I had no idea who they were. We didn't know, why, why were we being woke up? Where are we going? We don't want to leave, we have school. I just grabbed a teddy bear off of my bed as we were ushered out. And they brought us out into the driveway and I remember seeing two black fans with black tinted windows. There was nothing, you could see nothing inside these windows. And that's where we were put. So my next memory was coming into this house in Tampa. It was huge. 
It was the biggest house that we'd ever seen or ever been in. We had our own separate wing, and I remember there was a guy standing there with a semi-automatic weapon, and that scared the shit out of us. We weren't allowed to leave, and we were told that you have to watch out for motorcycles now. Motorcycles had always been a security blanket to me because it was my father and my uncles that were on motorcycles. Now I'm being told that I need to be afraid of motorcycles because they pose a threat and to watch out for those patches. And it was then that we realized this house, this was actually a government safe house for federally protected witnesses. And this house was occupied by agents, U.S. Marshals, 24-7. Not just one, not just two, but many. Of course, we didn't know it at the time, but my dad had made a deal to become a federally protected witness in exchange for his testimony against the Hells Angels. And part of that deal was to scoop us up and put us into the witness protection program. The Department of Justice, who handles the program, keeps all the details secret. Very few people know how the process works. Bill Mushi is one of them. The minute somebody rats somebody out, the mechanism of the government goes into full force where they grab everybody who is in danger and put them in safe houses. Bill Mushi is an author, journalist, and professor. And in 1996, he wrote a groundbreaking expose for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette about everything that's wrong with the Witness Protection Program. The minute the loved one goes into business with the government, the family no longer has its liberty, and they become prisoners of the government for all intents and purposes because they can't leave, they can't, they have no control over their life. It's almost like they're in jail. And once they put them in the safe houses, they'll have more than one family living there, which is bizarre to me. There were other protected witnesses in this house as well. And there was a man who was wearing white and tan, and he was clean. He shaved his face, he cut his hair. And I remember him sitting at a table with a lamp on the table and I didn't know who this guy was until he spoke. And he said, it's me. Jackie Ann. Come here, Jackie Ann. Jackie. And I just remember thinking, your hair, your shirt, your everything. Why had he changed? It didn't make any sense. Where was my dad and this guy? I know this guy is my dad, but I'm fucking confused. And we were told that our name was going to be changed. We weren't quite sure why. I had a notebook where I actually filled up that notebook with my new name, Jacqueline Ann Taylor. Jacqueline Ann Taylor. Over and over and over. And they told me that if I wrote my new name wrong anywhere, or if I ever got my story wrong, that I could get my whole family killed. Without the light or the darkness come. On the next episode of Relative Unknown. 
As I tried to get the knife ready to slash out at the guy pulling on my patch, I heard him say, he's still fucking alive. He stuck the knife in, and as he was going down, he kept driving that knife up into the chest cavity of the guy in front of him. And later this season, my story growing up in the program. Relative unknown as a creation and presentation of C-13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13 and Rumor Inc. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran, Zach Levitt, David Balinson, Michael Galinsky, and Suki Holly. Written, produced, directed, and edited by Zach Levitt. Produced and edited by Perry Kroll. Our theme song is Change on the Rise by Avi Kaplan. Original music composed by Joel Goodman. Mixed and mastered by Bill Schultz. Production support by Ian Mont and Lloyd Lockridge. Field recording by Rich Berner, Michael Galinsky, Perry Kroll, and Connor Waddingham. Production engineering and coordination by Sean Cherry and Terrence Malingone. Artwork, marketing, and PR by Kurt Courtney, Josephina Francis, and Hilary Schuff. I'm Jackie Taylor, and thanks for listening to Relative Unknown. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From m and rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.